Hi everyone, this is Maxine Ryan with Prosper Podcast and today's special guest is Brian Hanley who is the founder and CEO of Bullish Studios. We're going to be talking about the revolution that's happening inside financial media as we know it. But before we get into that, I just want to say a big thank you to our sponsor Future Fund who invests in the future of humanity. So Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Maxine. Yes. Um, you know, it was interesting because when I came across Bullish Studios, all I saw was raccoons, like everywhere. All of a sudden, all through my Twitter feed, all through my TikTok. Can you explain a little bit about how you guys came up with your uh, your logo? Yeah, so, <laughs> your logos and everything like that. Why yeah. the raccoon? Why Bullish? Like, you know, I want the whole story of how you guys came up with this genius marketing. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, uh, how do we land on bullish? It's been a word and a term that's just thrown around a lot, uh, both in the financial world, but also in culture. It's something that a lot of people understand. It kind of projects positivity um, and, you know, with a little bit of aggressiveness. So, uh, you know, we're, we, we kind of settled on that name, you know, before we launched. Um, and uh, yeah, we really liked it. Uh, Bullish was a solid name and kind of rolls off the tongue. Uh, previously, I worked at Vice um, and it was always great to walk into meetings and like, you know, when you say your advice, every, it's just like simple. Everybody knows how to spell it. There's no like abbreviations. It's just like, boom. Oh, got it. Great. Um, you know, so that's been, um, you know, that that's kind of I guess how we landed on that. Um, I also, <laughs> I randomly had a quote in a New York Times article uh, talking about this house that I bought. Uh, and I said that I was bullish on Bushwick. And uh, one of my colleagues commented on my Instagram being like, bullish on Bushwick should be the name of your like book. And I kind of <laughs> drew inspiration from that. So that's how we landed on bullish. The raccoon, um, the raccoon is a kind of a more nuanced story because, uh, you know, my one of my partners, Jordan uh, Kinley, who kind of joined a couple months after launching, helped kind of pioneer a lot of the kind of creative uh, at the company. And, um, you know, we, we worked with a, a New York City based graffiti artist called Doug One to design our logo. And um, the raccoon was something that like was cute, but also disgusting and ugly. And people were, we found people sharing it. There's a Twitter account called Raccoons Daily. And it's just somebody that yeah. tweets out pictures of raccoons. Um, so we always liked, we kind of like, we're kicking around that. We have kind of another logo that we use, which is a little uh, emblematic of the um, the Illuminati logo. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kicking around ideas, you know, he came back with some illustrations of it. And we were like, look, we, we love this. I think the raccoon symbolizes this idea that like, you know, uh, everything is is becoming transparent. Uh, you know, Wall Street's dumpsters, we're the raccoon eating around and taking a look <laughs> at what's going on. And, you know, we're around, we're cute, we're smiley, but also, you know, we'll, we'll eat anything up and, you know, have an opinion on things. So, yeah, I mean, look, I think it's it, it allows people to have an imagination and it allows us just creatively to have a lot of fun with the brand. Um, you know, it, it, it's not a, it's not a personal brand for me. It encompasses a lot and a, and a bigger belief. So yeah. uh, I think that having a symbol and a logo allows us to have more flexibility versus just having like text. So it was, um, yeah, it was a big learning process, but that's the, that's the, the story. Yeah. That that's really interesting. Um, you know, something that was really cool that you mentioned was that investing was becoming more as like a culture when you say that, what would be like the the norm or like the status quo that culture, or sorry, that investing usually is? And what is the culture that's happening now? Yeah, I think that there was this, there's been this long term idea of kind of in like, don't worry about where your money's investing. Focus on your job, your nine to five, your nine to 10 or whatever it is. And basically like hire a financial advisor, you know, you go out, you shovel the money over and give it to some financial advisor that tells you, here's your 60-40 portfolio. Don't worry really about what's in it, but I got it. And I think there was this whole idea of like, how do you separate people from their money for a while and just diversify them broadly in just the world mm-hmm. stock index. And I think when you start to look at, you know, trends that are happening in culture outside of, you know, from everything from the, you know, the, the civil rights movements that are happening and, yeah. you know, voting with your dollar and all these things. And then you start to unpack where people's money actually is. There's a huge discrepancy there. You know, it's one thing to not shop at, you know, Canada Goose because you don't believe in what their kind of beliefs are. But it, things start to get a little bit more interesting when you start to look at the average 401k in the U.S. Three to five percent of it is locked up in Altria and Philip Morris. And if you think about how many people who have had, you know, relatives that have passed away from cancer, not even having the option to say, hey, I would want to move a little bit of that out. You start to open up this huge 
this huge kind of nasty web of uh, just finance and Wall Street and the way things are done. So I think what you're starting to see is this, and you saw this with the you know introduction of Robinhood and, and a lot of the online brokers, but you know, E-Trade and whatever, those have been around since the dot-com era. And it's been great that people have been able to take control of their investments. With Robinhood and the rise of the kind of YOLO economy, it's like people are realizing that they can invest for themselves. They can get reckless, which can be a lot of fun if it's done properly. <laughs> but then it's also, you know, there's a whole group of people that are taking investing into their own hands. They're picking ideas and trends and funds that they believe in. They understand the workings of them. And that's, I think, the culture that you're seeing where it's taking control of your money. Um, the tagline that we like to kick around here is follow the money. Um, yeah. And I think that holds true to not only markets, but also just like the motivations of people. Um, you start to understand a lot more about what people's motives are when you understand where the money is, where it's going and why it's going there. So, um, yeah, I think there's a, you know, a very exciting change happening where people are taking control of their money that they work so hard every day to earn. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're going to get into like all of that about, you know, where is it that investing is going for the younger generation, you know, this whole concept of your dollar, your vote, what exactly people are interested in. Before we get into that, I really want to understand more about you. Um, when I was doing research, I saw that you were previously an analyst at S&P Global Ratings. Is that right? Kind of. I reset. Kind of? summer internship. <laughs> I, that was a summer internship. Uh, I, I, that was my first taste of wall street, like actually like going down there and working on mm. well, water street technically. But, um, you know, it was very exciting to see kind of big business and like, you know, interact with executives and watch how, you know, million dollar opportunities come into a system and like how it gets processed. So I was, that was more of a summer internship while I was in college. Um, I would say my first kind of real experience, um, well, you know, I'd say it's a little, it's a little tricky because, you know, when I was in high school, I became obsessed with technology and I was building computers. I was burning DVDs. I was like selling them, you know, in school. And I was always had this kind of entrepreneurial kind of knack for me, just like, you know, hustling DVDs out to kids. And, um, you know, one, one thing that really bubbled up during that time was Google and the idea of the search engine. It just, it felt like just such an open portal for my imagination to run wild. And when I called when that they were going public, um, I begged my dad to say, hey, look, I don't know how we do this, but we need to own this stock <laughs> and uh, convince my dad to buy like five grand worth of Google's IPO. Uh, went on to double that, uh, which then led to my first car. So I was able to buy my dad's used car from him. So I drove around his Jeep for, for years. Um, so that's kind of really what like got me started in the market and got gave me a taste for it in a very controlled way. And then, you know, I would say looking at my career, I, I looked at, you know, I was always, as I said, into technology, majored in IT with in the business school at Hofstra uh, University on Long Island. And then um, went on to work at this company called Starcom Media Best Group, which if you look at the website, it looks like somebody took mushrooms and started copywriting because yeah. uh, I, I was very, uh, I had no idea what a media agency was uh, or what mm -hmm. the role was or what they did. But after walking in there and starting to see what goes on, I, it really opened my eyes to how money moves around, specifically in the advertising industry. Um, and for context, Starcom Media Best Group, well, formerly known as that, it's now Publicis. But they're kind of one of the largest advertising agencies in the world. Uh, they help brands. Well, they were helping at the time brands like Coca-Cola, Walmart, Samsung, essentially plan, strategize, and deploy their ad dollars across everything from television, outdoor, and digital. I was specifically on the Samsung business and um, helped them launch the Galaxy brand of phones. And that gave me a front row seat to watching budgets go from about $100 million a year to a billion a year of how you actually deploy money. So we were calling up everybody from every major website, social networks, helping deploy advertising dollars with an eye towards getting people to switch from an Apple to a Samsung or from a flip phone to a Samsung at the time. So it, that was a really exciting um, opportunity to learn about how the advertising industry works, the players, the people who are good, not so good, um, Three, like seeing how three martini lunches do deals, um, yeah. how you can move uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars from one light item to another and have no material impact on the business and, and things. So like there's a lot of really interesting uh, learnings that I, that I took away from that. From there, I was doing a lot of business with Vice, Vice Media, Vice.com, Vice and HBO. And we, um, it drew me to that brand because they always were coming up with creative ideas to help kind of 
a, a big goal of Samsung's was to get the phone into culture. It's one thing to advertise it. It's another thing to really like get it in the hands of people who matter. And Vice had this way of just finding this kind of natural way to do it through advertising events and media. Ended up uh, jumping over there and um, essentially was in sales and partnerships for five years. So started off as a junior seller and then ultimately, um, you know, left as somebody that was leading a lot of the global partnerships with WPP, Publicis, uh, Samsung, Unilever, Google, um, a lot of them. So, you know, that, that was a lot of fun to understand media journalism, you know, uh, launching a television channel, launching Snapchat shows that really gave me a firsthand look at how media is actually made, um, mm -hmm. you know, how journalists operate, how they behave, how they think, how they operate and all that. And then also how brands behave and think and how they want to deploy dollars into those groups of people to ultimately get them to talk about their, their products. So um, yeah, that's a little bit of the history on me. And then, you know, from Vice, we were kicking around this idea about Vice for Finance, um, tried to get it off the ground. It, it kind of saw the light of day, but kind of didn't. Why, um, why do you think it didn't? Was it simply because most of Vice's audience were not really into finance at the time? Uh, so it was actually the opposite. They were deeply involved in it. And I think that one, one thing that I really started to see advice that I, I found surprising was that every assumption that, um, you know, media and, and platforms made about vice and, and, or even platforms audience kind of went out the window. And, and there's this, um, kind of story that we used to tell a lot of Vice, which is like when YouTube first hit the scene, Vice was just starting to pick up cameras and film some of their content. YouTube said, look, here's the playbook. It's gotta be short, funny, not too serious. Definitely don't talk about news or politics. If it's international, expect no viewership. So wow. Vice was really struggling with how to cover that because everything in the magazine was drug, sex, rock and roll, international culture, North Korea, all this yeah. stuff. So when everybody was like, look, let's go have an offsite, let's figure this out. The lawyers were like, yo, you got to upload content from our to, due to our contract. So we uploaded, I think it was like the Vice Guide to North Korea, which was a 25 minute long documentary of everything. The opposite of the YouTube playbook blew up on the platform. It, it mm -hmm. literally, it was one of the first documentaries on YouTube and just blew up. So it really- Yeah, I remember that one. Like I remember it, like seeing it and being like, oh my God, I haven't seen anything like this on YouTube before. Right. So that was an example of how like, you know, a preconceived notion from a company as big as YouTube is just like, it doesn't necessarily, you know, they don't necessarily know the audience as well as they think they do. So when it comes to things like, you know, uh, money and, and news, the same thing happened with news. Like when, when Vice News was launching, everybody was like, nobody, your audience does not give a shit about news. Like, you know, why would you get into that? It's an awful kind of industry to be in from a monetization standpoint, but it's incredibly important. And this was just kind of uh, the, the precursor to the 2016 election. So, you know, Vice News launched and it was a smash hit. Like, you know, HBO came along and, and basically gave Vice a television show, which is the gold standard of television from, uh, you know, a, a, a crappy YouTube channel, you know, five, 10 years before to getting an HBO show. That's nothing short of impressive. And I think, you know, seeing that and seeing the success of it really opened my eyes up to like, audiences love this shit, you know? So mm -hmm. we would do, we would constantly do a lot of studies on the audience and they deeply cared about their money. I mean, they were deeply passionate about social issues and, you know, where, what was going on, but they just didn't have a resource, you know, in media to, to, to help be their wingman there. So I would say the, the reasons that Vice Money didn't get off the ground were I kind of, I, I think an amalgamation of a few different factors. I think Vice at a corporate level was going through some um, just general realignment. Uh, Shane just stepped down, Nancy came in and there was a, a kind of a double down on the vice master brand versus going and spinning off all these other sub brands. Mm -hmm. So that was part of it. And then there was just this general, like, um, I think there was a little bit of the, of, of the point of view that you mentioned around like people kind of questioning, like what can vice and, and, you know, how does that really look talking about money? So, you know, there's a lot of things. Um, but I'd ultimately say like my, I was there for five years and it was kind of, I always had this entrepreneurial knack and wanted to pursue it. And I think that, you know, Thankfully, I did because what I'm starting to notice now with how bullish is is built and how we're able to be super super nimble is media fundamentally is changing, um, and uh, I can go into this whole kind of point of view on it. Yeah. But it's like the the business model of the vices of the world I think are are, are good, but they're not great. Um, and I want to ultimately build a sustainable media business, um, both for myself and the folks that we work with. And I I truly think that that can happen. But a core component of that is keeping overhead low. And with 3000 employees around the globe and 25 offices, it's a little challenging to do that. Um, but there is a lot of bright spots in the vice business. And I still have a lot of friends and, you know, respect for the brand. Yeah, I absolutely. Like that's such a, a good overview, I think, of 
what traditional media or like, I, I mean, even like new types of media are kind of struggling in this like really fast paced arena where, you know, there is more space for, um, I think more creative studios like such as yourself to kind of be more nimble, as you said. Um, but, you know, like, let's get into like what gave you the idea of Bullish. Um, you know, what's your mission? Like, how are you guys growing? Uh, what type of content do you guys like, predominantly focus on? Yeah, totally. So the Bullish mission at the end of the day is, is pretty simple. It's to help just, you know, generally lower the wealth gap and, and kind of help, help you know, it, it's only gotten, uh, well, so yeah, help lower the wealth gap. There's a huge wealth transfer happening uh, with millennials. There's $30 trillion getting kind of passed from our parents' generation down. So there's going to be huge downstream effects on that. Um, and then the, the other is just help generally improve financial literacy. Financial literacy in the U.S. is only, um, uh, has gotten worse since the 2008 financial crisis, which is concerning. Yeah. And I think a lot of that really has to do with just the financial media industry uh, at large. There's been a ton of studies done, and there's one in particular that was done by Edelman, which is a big PR company, taking a look at like why is the financial industry the least trusted industry out of every other category? And it really comes down to just something simple as like they lawyers write the advertising. You know, every mm. single thing that is that is marketed is done with an eye towards compliance, and you know, it's just dry. And it's I think that. Traditionally, the financial industry has been challenging for creatives to want to join because of that lack of flexibility. Creatives want to go and, and have, you know, have, an, have a freedom. Slam, yeah. Not, yeah. Not have rules. Right. So, you know, having those rules in place create a, a barrier to entry for the entire category, which then in turn affects generations of, of education. Uh, so, you know, th th that's kind of the bullish mission is to really help, you know, decrease the wealth gap and improve financial literacy. Um, the way that we're tackling, and that's a big, that's a big kind of mission and challenge, but I think it trickles down into a bunch of components of our business that are important because, you know, as you saw over the last couple of months with all the scam coins and stuff, it really helps keep our moral compass in check of like what mm -hmm. we will and will not do. Um, and I, I'd say to kind of go a level deeper of like what it is that we do. So we are we, we talk about ourselves as a creator studio. Bullish as a, as a brand is um, we, we help partner with creators in the financial business investing world and um, help them grow, monetize, navigate the world. Uh, and then ultimately launch businesses with them. Uh, and that's that's kind of the most exciting part of what we're doing is actually getting into business as a true either joint venture partner or part mm -hmm. owner in what a creator ultimately wants to do. And then we help them assemble a team uh, around them. And everything is done with an eye towards sustainability um, and, and diversification of revenue. So, you know, it, it's a lot of fun. We're working with some really influential folks in the space, some you know, some new folks, a lot of them kind of picked up their a TikTok account last year. Yeah. Um, others have been in the space for, for decades. So um, yeah, the type of content that we create is honestly across all platforms. Um, everything we do is really, you know, wherever, wherever the, the creator is the strongest and they see the biggest opportunity, we help them enable that. Um, we'll also make recommendations on where they could grow towards. Um, if it's simply like, hey, take your TikToks and put them on YouTube shorts, little things like that. Yeah. Um, and then more macro ideas around like, hey, should we go and like start a huge venture back business with this one creator? So those are all things that um, that, that we're helping enable. Yeah, I, I love to see that happen. And, you know, I think something that's really interesting that I've seen kind of grow over time is that creators are kind of more entrepreneurial now, like they're not just kind of content creators. These are business people. Um, but it's kind of interesting in like the financial creator space because they are somewhat limited by what type of products and services they can provide if they are in the financial space. Can you give us a little bit of an idea about what type of products your creators are looking or like the industry that your creators are looking to create or they're already in? So I would kind of disagree with you. I think mm. that there's, um, I, I don't necessarily believe that like, because a creator is a financial creator, they're only able to promote a certain set of products or services. Um, I think that like, at the end of the day, these creators are people, they have personalities and they have stories to tell. And everybody that we work with is a storyteller of some shape, shape or fashion. Everybody wears sneakers, shoes, t-shirts, hats. <laughs> so, <good>. um, <laughs> so, uh, 
So, so, you know, I think that, you know, the, the possibilities are endless for what they can do. I think that, you know, what, what I like to see is the, the ones that are the kind of most random ones at its core. Yes. Our major clients are the broker dealers the you know, the big brokers, the Robin hoods, the M one finances, the betterments, the bro, you know, all the robo advisors. Yeah. Um, and, and those are kind of the natural partners. What's most exciting to me are kind of the next orbit out. It's really figuring out like, what are the other um, brands and products and, and, and partners that we can connect with that might not be in the finance endemic space, because that's where ultimately, if we want to achieve our goals and, and our mission, we need to not only continue to talk about stocks and investing to audiences that care about it, but how do you attract the next kind of orbit of audience out, whether it's, you know, people call it like the investing curious or crypto curious audiences. How do you go and engage them and bring them into the actual um, you know, orbit of these, these true financial creators. So, you know, there's a lot of work that we're doing to kind of launch shows and ideas with creators that might not be in the financial niche, but then mm. ultimately kind of jump into that category. And we're seeing the same happen with creators in the financial world that want to go and jump into esports or into sports betting or whatever it is. And um, yeah. that's ultimately where I think that um, it's funny every time, like there's a form that a creator needs to fill out of like, what category are you in? It's like, well, I'm actually in three or four of them. Um, um, yeah. And we're constantly working with creators to mold from there. So, yeah, I would say like, look, a lot of our, our clients and, and the, the folks that are helping keep keep this this mission afloat and the business afloat are we're an advertising based business right now. In the future, we're, we might look to evolve that. But um, ultimately, and there was an interesting study done that says 80 um, percent of uh of creators revenue comes from brand deals, whereas 0.5% come from subscription revenue. So it's really funny when I see all of these VC backed companies coming in, beating this drum about how, you know, a creator might be able to charge money for their content. And it's like, uh, look at what Facebook has announced with a billion dollars and what Snapchat is doing with their million dollars a day. That's where the money's going. And that downstream puts money in the creator's pockets without having to do sponsored content, without having to ask their audience for money, without having to ask for all these things. So I think the advertising based business model gets a lot of heat. Um, but I fundamentally push back on all of that and think that, you know, advertising is, it enables media to be free. And mm -hmm. if we want to go and educate the masses, beyond high earning people who can afford subscriptions, you really need to have a, you know, an advertising based business model. And uh, that's what we're helping, um, helping navigate. Um, that also comes down to the fact of like making sure our creators are getting what they're worth. We get a lot of lowball offers, a lot of people that are trying to just get things for free or low cost, And we yeah. help really navigate the creators and educating them on, look, this is what you're worth. Like there's other deals that are willing to pay you more. Um, but, you know, so we, we, we help them kind of as a, as a partner uh, navigate a lot of those challenges. It, it really sounds like you're kind of like not only a media company, but you're also an agency as well for creators and for all types of different creators that kind of want to jump around. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's really cool. When it comes to, um, I mean, I'm sure you have like thousands of people every single day, like visiting your website, you actually know like what people are interested in. What do you think are the major parts of investments that your viewers are most interested in at the moment? What are, what are the creators? So that's a challenging question because I think that there's, there's a couple layers to it. I think if you look at the macro level, like everybody, like the stock market is cool. The stock market wasn't cool two and a half years ago. So it is cool to talk about money um, and it's becoming more and more cool. It's cool to invest in, in things that you yeah. know, you love, that you have access to. So I think we're generally like across the board, numbers are up because people give a shit about money um, and it's in all different types of facets. I mean, we have an article blowing up on our website right now about uh, something related to traveling with weed, right? And we can, we see general cannabis being a huge kind of component of you know, the conversations in the future and, and cannabis has been part of the stock market for, or on the, you know, companies, um, cannabis companies have been listed on the stock market for years now. Um, so, you know, that's been an exciting area. I mean, look, you have the kind of waves of things like, you know, Dogecoin and NFTs and then GameStop and AMC and kind of whatever the, the flavor of the day is. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to remember that like when those trends come and come, you know, they're not like, yes, the conversations around them will die down a little bit, but there's still communities of people that are, that, that are, that are born from that. And there's a huge opportunity within those communities that, you know, maybe like other media companies might be overlooking. And I think a good example of this is Dogecoin, 
Dogecoin was like one of the, I mean, it's been around for years and it just so happened to kind of start to trend again uh, this year. But if you look at somebody like Crow, the Dogecoin millionaire, he's somebody who kind of went all in on it and was able to build a media platform around him and a, and a business around it. It enabled him to quit his job, focus on this full time. He's got an audience of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that want to listen to him and understand his lifestyle. So that's kind of one area that's like popping up of like, well, there's something there. There's NFTs, crypto, yeah. you name it. I think across the board, like we're we're seeing a broad based interest in in content. I think um, you know we're what what it, what's most exciting to me, and I, I was alluding to this earlier, are shows or ideas that help expand beyond the core finance, stock investing, you know, um, beat. Uh, and we we just launched a show with uh, a creator named uh, uh, Serena Shahidi. She was by Glam Demon two thousand four on TikTok. So she's kind of known for her hot takes on general culture and, and dating and being a, a young Gen Zer in, in New York. And we just launched a show with her called Scandalous. So um, it's a show about scammers, swindlers, and uh, and fraudsters. And she's for the longest time she just got a write up in the Times about you know what what the evolution of a girl boss looks like. And yeah. she was talking a lot about um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes from uh, the founder of yeah. their being a kind of a huge scammer. So like telling stories about that, um, she the, the first episode was all about Charles Ponzi and the kind of the, the start of the Ponzi scheme. So her bringing a story like that to her audience, which are generally, you know, 18 to 24 year old women that are, you know, city based that are, you know, on a track to be, you know, affluent. You know, it's like what well, that's a great show for us. And I, I look at that and I see a ton of potential there. Um, so, so that excites me. Um, and, and I could go on and on. There's there's tons of ideas and opportunities, but our creators are, are in kind of very different subcategories of, of finance. You know, we've got some that are speak to traders on Wall Street, other that are speaking to, you know, these you know, younger women that are, you know, yeah. dating around in New York. So, you know, I think it, it's great that we have this ability to um, have tentacles in a lot of different places. Whereas if we had a, a, a like bullish is not in itself necessarily a consumer facing media brand. We have bullish rippers, which we're building into one. But uh, we could we see bullish as kind of more of an, an aggregator that can kind of uh, connect people to creators that they might find interesting. Yeah, I mean that's that's really really cool. It seems as though you're kind of finding like where the conversation about money is happening in niche communities that no other financial brand has really been able to capitalize on ever before. Um, so you know something that was really interesting that happened was that TikTok, I think just last week, announced that they're going to be banning uh, influencers that promote high risk financial content to protect young investors. Now, like my thoughts on this is that I think that's I have two thoughts. Like one side of me is just kind of like, well, there's so many other kind of scams and things like that that are being pushed in other industries that are being promoted on TikTok and that there could be probably a more elegant solution that could happen on like TikTok itself. But what's your thoughts on this? Like, do you think that that was a good move to do? Do you think that's just a natural progression of what was happening? Yeah, I think it was a great move. I think it needed to happen. And I think what you're looking at is you're, they're added the, 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 the long time saying of like Silicon Valley versus Madison Avenue and just generally like Silicon Valley point of view, like Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, I didn't realize that our platform could be used for hate or misinformation. Like you're, you're enabling billions of people to communicate with each other. Like this is happening. We saw what happened during the 2016 election. Like anybody that is starting a social network today. It, it is not an okay excuse to say, oh, I didn't realize this would happen. And then when it comes time to policing it, they, oh, well, it's actually a tougher challenge than we imagined. It's like, like, this is all like you are enabling network effects that is in your pitch decks. That is what you're telling investors. So these types of things are going to, you know, trickle through, you know, through the platform. I think that this is a much needed, um, much needed policy change and just update because look, the amount of scam coins that have kind of hit the market and they were they were flourishing on platforms like TikTok. And you know, when you look at Google and Facebook, they just have general for somewhat blanket bans on crypto, um, you know, in some complex financial products. It those platforms require the advertisers to upload documentation, especially depending on what, what country you're in, that like you are a registered like broker dealer and you can offer these things. So, you know, I'm a, I, I love how kind of some of those other platforms are navigating that. Um, and as it pertains to TikTok, it's like, look, there was nobody who it, who was going to stop the the the, the crypto meme, you know, uh, scam coin kind of 
uh, you know. But don't like, you think that there's, okay, like, don't you think that there's a little bit of like a contradiction there? Because on like one hand, you're saying that you have a creator that, you know, made all his money from Dogecoin. You have probably a lot of creators that have had their whole careers built on TikTok. And then you're saying it's a good move for TikTok to ultimately ban like financial yeah. creators, like these are the platforms that, you know, because of the free reign and these network effects have allowed creators to even have a career in the first place, which like completely changed their lives. Yeah. But the TikTok needs to overcorrect right now. There has been, there's, it's, mm-hmm. it is no longer, they were getting a lot of very good press for being the place where young people can go and learn how to, you know, look at their finances. But then if you look at how far, like the, the most scammy crypto schemes have gotten, I mean, like Kim Kardashian was peddling Ethereum Max, and it's yeah. like that's that's the level. And the thing about it is that the SEC has like a three to five year delay in like actually enforcing these things. So we're not going to actually see the downstream repercussions of some of these actions for for a while. And there was actually just something about BitConnect, uh, which was I think a big scam in 2017, but yeah. people just went up for it. So you're going to see like this is going to net protect people. But look, like not to say that like crypto should not be talked about on these platforms. They should. But it's not just crypto. Like the thing is, it's like they might be trying to ban crypto, but it's actually not that like it's actually most financial like products and services. So I like personally, I totally get what you're saying. But I think at the same time, it's like I think actually the media, what they did was that they got this whole idea that the beat was about you know, it's banning crypto people, but actually it's like a whole blanket statement across all financial products and services, which I don't think is like- Everybody can interpret the, the policies the way they want. TikTok reps will interpret it the way that they want. Ultimately, it's the algorithm. I think you're going to start to see a ton of people getting their content pulled down, a ton of like confusion happening. But ultimately, mm. this is something that needed to happen. And what you will start to see is the, the big crypto companies, the exchanges are banging on the door of TikTok saying, I need clarity. I need clarity. If you want my ad dollars, you got to get clarity. But for TikTok right now, as a, as a global brand that is looking to position themselves for the future, it is in their best interest to just say no to this for the time being, reassess it in a year, 18 months. And honestly, like we're going to see a lot, like the, we'll, we will see where the crypto industry and, and what, what ends up happening between, I would say, if, if, if Bitcoin doesn't get up to close to like 100,000 by the end of the year, we might go into another crypto winter. And in that case, it's like, what, like yes, there's going to be communities of crypto on that, but like it's going to be more stock focused, more, like, there's mm-hmm. another pocket that will pop up. So look, I, I think that it is an overcorrection. I think that there's, there's um, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about this, and, and I, I don't know if this is something that like, uh, being an Australian, you, you remember, but there, when I was growing up, um, like everybody was talking about how they had ADHD and everybody was trying to get an Adderall prescription. And there was this uh, Canadian pharmacy loophole where it was legal for a U.S. citizen to go and get on the phone with a Canadian doctor and that Canadian doctor would prescribe you basically whatever you wanted and then send it over over the border to, to the U.S., and we had was, that in Hong Kong. We had that in Hong Kong, but like instead right. of Hong Kong, it was going to China. <laughs> right. So it was legal, completely legal. And yeah. Google was a- actually the real beneficiary of this because I think they were getting anywhere between, like, I think they were getting a couple billion dollars in ad revenue because all the Canadian pharmacies were using Google to sell the product by saying, hey, Adderall Canada, boom, they would go and get the most lucrative cost per clicks. Google just did a blanket no. Now, mm-hmm. there's one side of the argument to say, well, actually, those people needed their pills and they needed those things. And then on the other side of it, it's like this was running rampant. And if the government is, is not going to look at it, who should? And I think Google kind of introduced a moral compass and said, look, like th- this doesn't seem right. We're going to put a pause to it. We're going to end it and then let, let the regulators figure this out and, and see where this goes. And I think TikTok at a macro level is doing something similar right now. Crypto has gotten so out of control with like the pump and dump. But it's not, seeing- yeah, but it's not just with crypto. Like you get pump and dump with even the stock market. Like it's, yeah, totally. I totally get what you're saying. Like, you know, yeah. crypto is like largely unregulated and there's a lot of heat on there that it's, it, it can be a mess, especially in the hype times. But like, we can't deny that there's other areas of like high financial risk 100%. that are being overly, like you're essentially... 100%. And we're just in the game of it. Like if you're in finance, there is risk involved. That's just the nature of it, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think created the boom of financial creators? Like, I feel like that's all of a sudden just became like this huge, like momentous of, yeah, creation that I personally really enjoy and like love. And like, that's what Prosper is all about. 
Um, but do you think that it was like people being locked away at home and they got their st like stimmy checks and then they were just kind of like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to start like putting this on TikTok and see where it goes. Like where did this yeah, boom come from of like more and more financial creators? Yeah, I, yeah, it's a good question. I think everybody will have a different answer. I think, um, yep, like the the introduction of online stockbrokers definitely helped. So E-Trade, Fidelity and all them, but then Robinhood coming around in 2014, 15 really helped make this even much, this entire world much more accessible and beautifully designed. And now it's kind of working against them a little bit, but it's not really. Uh, so, you know, the- Oh, wait, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean you're working against them a little bit? So basically like the thing that not a lot of people like to realize about Robinhood and the whole GameStop thing, that was a net positive for them overall. I mean, like their, their app was, I mean, you saw their, their uh, S1 filing, it just led to more, more users, you know? And, and in that case, like, yes, there's some like, there, there's a lot of bad press that they need to go and kind of uh, resolve and, and I, work out. I think their whole ethos is like no bad press, like as in like any press is good press in their opinion. Totally. And that goes back yeah. to Silicon Valley. Go and have at it. We're just going to give you the tools. And the thing that's important to remember, and yes, there have been a few fines with Robinhood. What Robinhood did is the same exact thing as every other stockbroker. It's just mm -hmm. that it got weaponized. And there's then the story about some, you know, a, a, a kid who took his own life because he didn't know how to read an option statement and that. Robinhood was allowing people to not, that, that couldn't trade options to trade options. Same thing happens across all these other brokers. Um, but Robinhood was the, the center of it and the, the, the one that got the most attention. But at the end of the day, they were built, they were driving new investors to the platform, which was a, which was a, a positive for them. Um, but going back to your question about how this came about, I think um, there was also, there's an interesting chart that shows the, the growth of uh, Wall Street bets and the subscriber count of that subreddit with the introduction of options on Robinhood. And there's a direct correlation between that. Wall Street Bets was this community that has existed for years. And it just so happened that, you know, with everybody getting locked down and there was a ton of time to spend, that all of a sudden people realizing like, oh shit, I can go and like, you know, try to make a little bit of money here. So I think that there has been this pent up demand that, that has been around for like, hey, could I go and get rich quick by doing yeah. this? Because I could outsmart Wall Street and I think then the platforms like a TikTok and, and making it so easy for creators to make videos and, and reach wide audiences just was a, a perfect kind of connection that, that led to this boom. But one of my advisors, Howard Linson, who is the co-founder of StockTwits, has, has been seeing this trend happen for, for decades of, of people wanting to kind of unbundle, <coughs> excuse me, unbundle the S&P 500 and take control of it. Um, you know, Americans are too, too diversified. So, you know, he was investing in Robinhood and a lot of these other platforms, you know, five, 10 years ago. And now like a lot of that, that big trend and that hit off. So fintech is eating the world and then platforms like TikTok enabling it to create very addictive features for creators to keep creating enabled this whole boom of them. Um, and uh, yeah, they, look, a lot of them have been around for a while too. Like Graham Stepin, Andre Jick, a lot of them have been, you know, be, you know, on, on YouTube for a while, but the, the niche overall grew, grew massively during, during Corona. So I think it was a kind of an amalgamation of, of a bunch of different um, kind of trends that all came about together into, into one. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so what is driving this connection between young investors and these creators? Like, you know, earlier in the conversation, you were saying that it's all about trust and like, you know, traditional financial media, people just do not trust it at all. Do you think that having like a personality, a face, maybe like even a voice for these niche communities are kind of like bridging the gap between young investors and the trust that they need to make their first investments? Yeah, yeah. everything, generally everything is talent led. You got You have to mm -hmm. find the creators that have a point of view that um, it's a strong point of view, it's a good point of view and the needs, you know, that they need help. And that's ultimately what leads to the most engagement with their audience. And I think when you look at media companies overall and the amount of engagement that they get versus creators, engagement rates are, you know, double, triple, quadruple because they can have a one-to-one -one dialogue with their audience. Whereas a media company, it's a little more challenging to do that. Now, not to say that media companies don't have personalities. I mean, they do. Um, and that those are, that, that's where there's a lot of bright spots there, but ultimately that's the biggest risk for media companies because then they go and leave. And I saw this advice when Vice, you know, worked with Jesus and Mero to bring them from a podcast to a, a TV show. And then mm -hmm. after their contract was up, they jumped over to Showtime. I want to ultimately be on the talent side. And that's where we can kind of like help creators navigate that and, and make sure that they're getting their value and helping them know which platforms they should be partnering with and, and grow from there. So I think, um, yes, it, it personality, talent driven is a key component for what we look for. 
And, um, and then that leads to stronger engagement and ultimately trust with the audience. At the end of the day, the only thing that we have with our creators is trust. The only thing the creator has with their audience is trust. Anytime that trust is broken, it's game over. And then you're, and, and what we saw, you know, and this is why I have such a strong point of view and on the, you know, the, 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 the point about TikTok and their banning is that like, you saw a lot of creators that were, might've not looked at their audience in the, the most positive light by trying to push them on some scams. And whether those are crypto scams or other types of financial products, it's, it's disappointing and, 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 and um, just, yeah, it's just disappointing to watch people with such large audiences, like try to take advantage of their audience like that. And I think mm. what you saw with Faith Clan and, you know, them kicking out members of the team, it's like, good. Like you're, you're you know- Sorry, just cut out with what, sorry? With uh, the Face Clan. Mm-hmm. So Face Clan uh, suspended two members and um, and uh, removed one for promoting crypto schemes that weren't approved by Face Clan. So you're, right. you're like it like they because they you know they're they're selling this to their audience to go and do it and then they're the one that are benefiting from it. That's a like that that's straight up scamming audiences. And but surely that that like doesn't have much steam, right? Like usually if you are known as a scam artist, you, like you're kind of like done for, and people go, okay, like I've learned from that. Do you think that there's like especially in the financial space, just like a natural progression of like bad actors being phased out over time? Oh yeah, of course. And that's where, you know, the, the creators that maintain the trust with their audience will maintain higher levels of engagement, higher levels of, of growth and everything. And, and that's where we have to take an editorial. We have an editorial decision on the folks that we work with and we don't work with. And we've had to turn yeah. down 10 times more than we've worked with because you're looking at the, you know, the, the history and you see how these people and what their point of view is in the world. And it's like, this doesn't fit our mission of trying to help decrease the, the wealth gap and improve financial literacy if this is what you're going to be doing with your content. And I'm a big fan of second chances. You know, we've had a lot of creators go through things there. You know, this is a complicated category that we're trying our best to navigate. Um, and but there's always going to be bad actors. And yes, we very much are, are helping be the right hand for them to navigate that. Um, but yeah, I think the trust that everybody has with each other is ultimately what's going to keep everything uh, together. Yeah, that's cool. So like just to kind of round it up, like there's been a really interesting discussion coming up about, um, you know, how economically precarious it is for creators. So it's not just like financial creators, but just creators in general. What is your thoughts on ownership um, when it comes to these creators, their content monetization? Yeah. Um, I mean, the creators are the, are the, are, are, are becoming the, the, these small businesses, right? And I think mm. small businesses have traditionally looked at as the mom and pop bagel shop or whatever kind of down on, you know, down the road. But creators are that breathing new life into what it means to be a, a business owner, specifically a small business owner. Um, I uh, I think that, you know, we're, we're moving to a world where everybody owns everything that they believe in. I mean, we own stocks and we own part of the, the country, you know, by, by owning yeah. what we own. And I think that, you know, as creators are looking at what their journeys look like, um, in the future, you know, they, they should be owning the products and services that they believe in and that they want to promote. And I think we help them navigate that. Um, when you look at what the kind of mix, uh, like the, the revenue mix of a creator is, everybody's different. And I think there's no one model fits all and there's no one monetization tactic that is the silver bullet. I think each creator has its own very particular nuances with how they monetize and how they look at um, how they want to use their platform for building wealth. I think the one really interesting component is, um, and, and this is something that I talk a lot about with, with, with our advisors and with the team internally, is that our media operation can operate as a break-even, if not a loss. But what it's doing is that it's growing our opportunities that come into us that could lead to ancillary businesses that could be these high-growth businesses. And we're seeing these come across our desk more and more now, which is why we're partnered up with a few folks on the venture side to help kind of essentially either potentially start our own fund or be a scout for others where we're referring these deals that come in. And that's where the real value gets created. But the, the opportunity is from, from the media arm because look a creator can go and do every brand deal they want and continue to build revenue that way but that's not necessarily a long-term sustainable strategy um charging your audience for content it works for some people doesn't work for others um and and we we, we have a ton of ideas and thoughts on how creators can navigate that um and you know we're 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 always interested in the next thing you know we're, we're constantly testing looking for signals 
I think an example of this is some work that we're doing with a creator whose name is uh, Tejas Haller. And yeah. he started off as kind of more of a crypto business focused creator and has turned into more vlog style, culture kind of stuff, lifestyle. And, um, you know, he's partnered up with one of his friends who's starting an ice cream shop. And, you know, he's <laughs> becoming an advisor to that shop. And then we're, we're essentially helping build connections there to see, okay, how can we make this thing a reality? And that's where, you know, that's media driving a bigger opportunity. So it doesn't matter if the, you know, it, if Tejas's particular operation is not profitable right now, but it's, it's something that we're, we're growing to. And if, and when that yeah. ice cream shop hits it big, that's the, the downstream. But at the end of the day, it's all about media to engage and um, kind of build that groundswell effect. So um, yeah, I think, you know, creators should own the, you know, own, own their work, own their businesses. You know, we, we part the way that we partner with creators um, enables ownership across the board, depending on what the, what the relationship is with the creator and what the product and project is. There's different components and strategies to that, but yeah, I mean, creators should own their work. Um, and I think, you know, helping them navigate what, what IP ownership is and everybody mm. loves to, you know, beat the drum about the call her daddy barstool deal. And with Spotify, it's like, there's a lot of nuances to that deal. And a lot of things that people don't necessarily understand. And, um, it's very interesting when people come to us and they ask like, oh, like, you know, you, you help manage creators, like what's your cut? And it's mm. funny how like, that's one of the first, like, I can always tell that one, if that is the first question that a creator asks, I, it's not the right question. And they probably are not going to be the best fit for us because it doesn't matter what our cut is because it matters the opportunity that we're unlocking on the other side of it yeah. that they would not otherwise be getting. So, you know, and we've had cases where a creator comes in, they tell us what the rates that they're getting are. And we say, look, here's our, our cut on this particular deal on this particular part of our business. And we'll go and 10 X the rate overnight. And mm. they're sitting there like, Oh, whoa. You know? So it's like, it, it, there's this whole race to the bottom for people of like, how much more of the pie can I get? And we're firm believers. Maybe, and I, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, I think like that that type of mentality probably comes a lot from them managing themselves and then them kind of being screwed over by, you know, these partnerships that they kind of feel like they don't get enough cut off. So maybe like that will slowly die out, like as more kind of, yeah, like more agencies out there, like more media companies kind of adopt what Bullish is doing now. Totally. Yeah. I mean, look, like, I think there's some really interesting companies doing some things. There's a, uh, there's an initiative called fuck you pay me, which I like, yeah. uh, they're basically <laughs> kind of gathering a bunch of rates from across the board. Um, look, it's, we are operating in a very unique space in media because a lot of it is a byproduct for how the platforms have not been able to, you know, handle creators and, and, and benefit yeah. them in a way. Like, you know, we like Instagram has never paid a check to a creator. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. now they're like on the back foot launching this billion dollar fund and like, oh, they might do some like, you know, shopping tools or whatever, but that doesn't help 95% of the creators that have been uploading reels and Instagrams for the last five, 10 years. And yeah. I think that the idea that creators should create for free for a platform for future earnings is going away. And I think, you know, people want to see business models. People want to see like, are, are, can I make money from this? And, you know, then there's always the enjoyment nature of it. I, I, I think that, you know, not every creator wants to be, be rich. Not every creator wants to run their own business. Not every creator like wants to, you know, take over the world and be the, this biggest thing. Like we have a ton of creators that work full time. They've got kids. They love picking up their phone for five hours, you know, a week. And they just, they're that, that five hours that they're spending on TikTok or Twitter or whatever it is, is so impactful. And then we have a team that basically supports that. So, you know, it really, it, everybody is different and it comes down to knowing what the person's, you know, more like where they want to run with. But yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. Brands need to, you know, brands need to kind of, um, uh, brands need to understand when and, and how to engage creators. Um, I think that there's this idea that you can just go and run around with a couple hundred bucks and get, get a bunch of stuff, but it's, that, that those are all short term thinking. And, you know, we're, we're not, we're, we're advising more and more creators to, you know, move away from the one-off brand deals and move more towards sure. closer collaborations and partnerships. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So just before we, we kind of like finish this up, um, you know, these financial creators, I think are probably going to enter a bit of a winter, like a lot of the big hype about like the stock market, like GameStop, Doge and all this type of stuff has quietened down. What are maybe like, the three main, like, yeah, three pieces of advice that you would give financial creators right now, like as kind of the trends are kind of dying down a little bit. Uh, so I think a lot of the big buzzy 
trends have died down a bit, but what isn't dying down is the fact that Robinhood has is opening up record amounts of brokerage accounts. And so is every financial services company. The amount of money and opportunity that is in the financial category and specifically financial technology and financial services is not going anywhere. Um, and I think you see this from Tiger Global coming in and just basically writing blank checks to anybody that wants to come in. This is, we are just getting started. And I think it is Hopefully us as an entire community are learning a lot about Dogecoin and all of these other financial products so that we get, you know, more and more like, that we get smarter. What I would say is for, for tips for creators to um, help them navigate what they might be is the name of the game is um, be yourself. Um, you know, if there's something that's passionate for you, talk about it. Don't feel that you need to only create financial content. Um, some of the, some of the most, some creators that we're working with are just hard pivoting into doing something totally different and it helps them grow their audience even further. Um, and they, you know, that, that's something that we get really excited about. And it goes into us working with creators that aren't necessarily in the financial niche to then bring them in and then helping our creators go into other niches that they're passionate about. Um, people and followers want to understand how creators operate and live their lives. And it's not just finance. So we're firm believers in diversifying, you know, their, their content portfolio and, and strategy but then also, you know, where they're publishing their content. Um, I've, um, uh, you know, single platform risk is, is real. You know, if all mm -hmm. of a sudden you randomly get, uh, you know, Zuckerberg decides to delete your account and that's been your life's work for, you know, five, 10 years, like, no, you know, you can't really call Instagram to get it back. So we were developing tools and, and strategies for helping creators, um, you know, uh, truly own and, and, and own their audience. And we have this whole email newsletter initiative that we're, that we're rolling out with creators. So they truly do own their audience and it's not a, a platform risk so that God forbid a YouTube account gets deleted. There's still a backup of all of their content that their, that their creators can discover. So we're, we're excited about those types of opportunities. Um, and yeah, I would say just like keep creating. I think that there's uh, there's a finite amount of financial creators that are what I would say like high quality and are like worth kind of engaging with. We need more of them. We need more people picking up their phone and filming content. The biggest hurdle for young creators is just pressing record and clicking publish. And we want to we're we're thinking a lot about how we can help design spaces, initiatives, studios, projects to enable that first you know, the people that are not creators coming into becoming creators. And, you know, TikTok, TikTok has, uh, you know, rallied a lot of people that were not creators to becoming them. And I think that is a huge, if, if you as a platform can help, you know, that enable that, that's where you're going to win the game. Um, and uh, that's what TikTok is enabled to do. And the tools that TikTok has are rival, like are, 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 are starting to challenge Adobe's Premiere Pro. And when yeah. you start to see that, that's a massive industry that they're kind of disrupting that not a lot of people are talking about. A kid can whip up a vlog in 10 minutes on his on his phone, and that would typically take an editor a week to do. Um, and, you know, we're, so we're really looking at how we can, you know, lower the overhead as much as possible with things like, hey, go and edit it on your phone. If it's not perfect, whatever, ship it next, next, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, on to the next one. That's so cool. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on to Prosper Podcast. Can't wait to see what Bullish does next. Great. Well, thank you very much, Maxine, for the time. And I uh, look forward to seeing everything that, you, uh, that you're up to and, and what comes of uh, the, the app and everything. Add it up. Add it up.